Hey, so this morning is a communion Sunday. That is the reason for the bags of juice and crackers that we have become familiar with during this COVID season. And our way to the table this morning, if you've read ahead, if you know where we're going this morning, we're talking about persecution in the church. We're talking about suffering in the church. But we're going to the table. We're ending at the table. We're concluding at the table. So it may feel a bit awkward, like, how do you get to the table through persecution and suffering? But trust me, we do. And we always have. So this morning, our passage is Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 17. But before I read it, realizing some of you weren't here last week, let me set the context for Acts 4 with what happened in Acts chapter 3. There was a miracle in Acts chapter 3. The first miracle done by apostles, where Jesus from heaven empowered his apostles on earth to do miraculous things. Things, just for a season, just for a time, but to show forth that they were validated. They represented Jesus and his ministry on the earth. And so Peter and John had shown mercy. They'd shown the mercy of God to a 40-year-old crippled man. A man who for all of his life had been paralyzed. And every day this man had to be carried to the temple gates called Beautiful. And he was put there. And the reason for going there was to beg for charity. And Peter and John see this crippled man, and he looks at them as if to say, help a crippled guy out. And Peter looks boldly at him and says, I don't have silver or gold, but there is something I'll give you. And he says, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise and walk. And the passage says that the man who had never walked before, whose legs were not strong, he rose, he stood, he walked, he jumped. All of those adjectives are told describing how the man moved. Now, I didn't say this last week, but this is interesting to me. Remember, Luke is writing Acts. Luke was a physician. Those of you who are doctors would think the same way. How can a man who's never stood before have the strength to stand, to walk, and to jump? Why, that's impossible. Well, Luke knows that's impossible. And that's the point of the miracle. That legs that couldn't walk suddenly walked. They had strength to jump. And this miracle, this mercy of God... It seems to soften some hearts. Thousands believed because they recognized this man. They'd seen him every day at the temple, and now he's walking. But strangely, some hearts are hardened by this miracle. Some have called it the miracle of unbelief. Let's read what happens following that story. Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 17. And we'll learn of the hardness of the sinful heart. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. 
they seized Peter and John. And because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin, and they conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they've performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in his name. Let's pray that the Lord would bless our understanding of his word. Lord, would you soften our hearts this morning that we might love truth over power. And we pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen. So I suppose there's a maxim, I don't know that there is, but there should be if there's not one, that says this. Leaders prepare followers for situations, circumstances that should be expected to come. I'm sure that's a maxim. I wrote it this morning, but I'm sure somebody else wrote it first. Now think of that for a moment. Some of you are leaders, some of you are teachers, professors, some of you have been coaches, many of you are parents. You know that an aspect of leadership is preparing your understudy, your child, your student, your athlete, whatever it is, to expect what might happen, to expect circumstances and situations that might arise. That's all a part of being a good parent, good coach, good professor. 
So yesterday, uh, this weekend, I had a wedding in Lexington, South Carolina. Two of our students uh, that I've known for four years got married. So that means on Friday we had a rehearsal, right? And so I'm officiating the wedding, and we have the wedding party, and we're going through all the little details so that they might know what to expect. And I want to be a good leader, so we anticipate some things that could go wrong. Because there are a lot of things that can go wrong in a wedding, right? So we're at the point where we're preparing for how to handle rings. Three different people, actually for five different people, can touch the ring in that point of the ceremony. So the minister is supposed to get rings from here and rings from here and give rings here and here. And so what did I say to them in the rehearsal? Now, if somebody should drop a ring, this is what we're going to do. We're going to designate who goes down to get the ring because if all of us go down to get the ring, we're all going to bonk heads and half of us will be on our backs, right? Anticipating things that can go wrong. You just have to do that. Those of you who are parents speak similar words like I do to my children who drive. Just to prepare them for things that could happen, right? So in our family, we have little statements like this that we say goodbye to our children with. Remember, hit the squirrel not the tree, right? Hit the deer, not the tree. Hit the possum, not the tree. And now we can even say, hit the armadillo, not the tree, right? The Lord's made plenty of squirrels. Those can be replaced easily, but he's made one of you. So let's let the squirrel pass on to glory, so to speak, and protect a life, right? Leaders want to help prepare followers, understudies, for what to expect might happen, for circumstances that could arise or that will arise. And I could go on and on with examples, and you have your own. My point in saying all that is that there's no better leader than Jesus. And he prepared his disciples for what was coming. And that would be that the church, that disciples according to Scripture, will be persecuted. We will be persecuted. He did not say that you might be persecuted. He said you will be persecuted. A few examples of this. The first is from Matthew chapter 5, verse 11. I didn't print all the passages. You'll just have to listen to these briefly. Jesus said, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. He says you will be blessed when you are persecuted and insulted. It's coming. Brace for it. Then in John chapter 15, verses 18 and 19, he told his disciples specifically, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. But as it is, you do not belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. And then in John chapter 16, verse 33, in this world, he told his disciples, you will have trouble, but take heart, 
I have overcome the world. So just three examples, and we could go on and on with Jesus' examples and the the Apostle Paul. Jesus as a leader is preparing his disciples for the reality that the world's going to hate you. If they hated Jesus, they're going to hate you. You'll be persecuted. You'll be insulted. Property will be seized. Hard times are coming. And so that's that sober tone that I told you. It feels awkward to get to the table through what could sound like an announcement of bad news. If you really love Jesus, it's going to be really hard out there, people. Let's close in prayer. That is the point of the sermon, and and we see it evidenced here in the very first miracle that the apostles have done, the mercy that they have shown a lifelong cripple, and the world's response to it is to want to shut it down and to shut the apostles up, literally. They want to bind and gag the ministry. They want to bind and gag Jesus and the apostles of Jesus. But the beauty of the story and the rest of the book of Acts that we'll see is you can't bind Jesus. You can't gag the gospel. It breaks forth with power and people respond. 5,000 people respond. And so the church, according to Scripture, it will be persecuted. And there is this distinction. Jesus speaks to it. A distinction between the church and the world. The church and the world. Do you know that distinction? Do you know that hostility in your own experience, in your own life? Jesus said it's coming. If it hasn't come for you yet, it will be coming. So don't be surprised. Don't be alarmed. There's a ministry called the Esther Project that seeks to bring awareness to the suffering that the church currently and historically has experienced it. To show the hostility, the tension, and the conflict. I think I have a slide for you. So this is from the Esther Project. It says, each month, 322 Christians are killed. That's globally. 322 Christians are killed. Killed. They're put to death for their faith. 214 churches and Christian properties are destroyed each month. You think about that. This is persecution that we do not know. 772 forms of violence are committed against Christians, such as beatings, abductions, rapes, arrest, and forced marriage trying to redefine a people. That's what's happening historically, presently, globally. That's the church, the reality of the church according to Scripture. Now, we can pause and give thanks to the Lord that currently, in our context, in our setting, in Greenwood, South Carolina, that seems like a long ways from us. For us... Our announcements in church can be about painting opportunities, trips to Carowinds, uh, fun events. I'm having the elders over tonight for a little barbecue on the patio. 
Well, that's pretty nice, isn't it? Carowinds, pool parties, dinner on the patio. Bible doesn't say anything about those specific things. It says that's the church in the earth. And we can see in our own context, we can see the dials turning up. I mean, we can't really speak of persecution in the weight of what's happening globally, but we can see the tension. We can see the burners are getting hot, even in our own country, right? The wedding that I did yesterday, I'll say openly and out loud publicly that, as I said yesterday, marriage is for one man, for one woman, for life. We're this close to that being hate speech, right? Literally. Uh, don't know where that's going to go and what's going to come, but, but that is where we're coming in our, in our own land. You start speaking what we believe to be true from the Scriptures, and the world turns hostile, it turns hot, and it wants to shut those things down. It wants to cancel them. It wants to shut those things up. That's what Jesus said to expect. If we're being surprised by this, we haven't taken our Bibles very seriously. We've just been so blessed. We truly are blessed with the freedoms that we have, the history that we've had in America. It has no doubt made all of us a little bit soft in our thinking about the church. But statistics like this, if they're presented to us, that can sober us to the reality of the church. That while we're in a soft season, there are other Christians living in a hard season. And there are ministries that seek to highlight this. Voice of the Martyrs, highlighting the persecuted church. We try to pray for the persecuted church uh, in our services. We should do that more often. But it should be on your radar and on your family's radar. But the truth is, we're a soft people living in a soft time. But it could get a whole lot hotter and harder a whole lot faster. So why is there this tension and this hostility between the world and the church? Quite simply, it's this. The church has always been speaking of an exclusive truth in a pluralistic world. Acts chapter 4, verse 12, there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. That is an exclusive claim. And a pluralistic world, a pluralistic society has no tolerance for it. How dare you say there is one name by which all must be saved? A pluralistic world cannot accept an exclusive claim. And that is the nature of the tension. If we are the true church, if we're faithful to the message of Scripture, the world is going to be hostile towards everything that we say. They'll love that we go to carowinds. They'll love that we have pool parties. But when we start pressing the one name, when we start pressing word, sacraments, and prayer the way we talked about a few weeks ago, the world has no category, no interest for that, and it will turn hot and hostile again against it, just as Peter's ministry and John's ministry has shown us so far. My second point, the miracle of unbelief. Someone else has called, called it this. I can't remember where I first heard this, but it is a miracle that some could witness this 40-year-old crippled man standing, walking, and jumping, and not believe. 
and not repent and not put their faith in Jesus. That's a second miracle in the passage. The first miracle is that the paralyzed man would stand and do those things. The second is that somebody would not believe what they just saw. The miracle of unbelief. But the truth is, it's because some hearts are hardened towards God. Some hearts are just hard towards God. Exodus chapter 9, verse 12, you might recall that it says of Pharaoh there, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said to Moses. Pharaoh had a hardened heart. He wouldn't tolerate the people of God, their interest in worshiping Yahweh. He wanted to shut them down and shut them up. And the passage says it was the Lord who hardened Pharaoh's heart. Let that get your interest. If you want something to look at and think through this week, it was the Lord who hardened the heart. And the hardened heart, regardless of when it is, it always responds the same way. It responds with disbelief in what it has seen and heard. It seeks to disobey and undo everything that God's Word says should be done for our behavior. And and that hardened heart seeks to self-preserve. Goal number one is to to get things better for me, right? Self-preservation. And then fourthly, that hardened heart wants to persecute. Shut things down, shut things up, silence, cancel, remove anything that speaks of the Lord. But the interesting thing here is as the hardened heart and as the hardened world seeks to bind and gag the gospel, they find that they are the ones who are speechless. I don't know if you heard that when I read from Acts chapter 4, but it says that there was nothing they could say because the paralyzed man was standing there and they could say nothing. So it's a reversal of the binding and the gagging. They don't know what to do. They can't say anything. And that's the power of the gospel. In Luke chapter 19, Jesus had said of his disciples what was in our reflection, that if the disciples keep quiet, if they're bound and gagged, you might say, then the rocks and stones will cry out. You see, you can't bind and gag the gospel. God's creation will cry out. God will free what is bound and gagged. And so the gospel always wins. The Lord always wins. But there are sin-hardened hearts that are hostile to God. They're hostile to the mercy of God shown to a cripple. They're hostile to the church that proclaims the name that forgives sins. But there's a third kind, uh, there's a second kind of heart in our third point this morning. And that is the softened heart. It's the miracle of a softened heart. That as sinful as humanity is, as lost as we are, as wrong as we are, God the Holy Spirit softens some hearts. He makes them interested in His holiness, in His mercy, in His ministry. In a few weeks, we're going to look at Acts chapter 9. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but there we 
here of Saul, who was hostile to the church, burning in anger to shut down and shut up the ministry of Jesus. And the Lord confronts him personally. And it says, immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes. And he could see again. And he got up and was baptized. And the Lord worked on a heart to soften a heart. And if you've heard what I've just said, I've said something confusing. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. The Lord softened Saul's heart. The Lord is the doer of hearts. He's the author of the outcomes of our hearts. And so it's this mystery and wonder, but oh, such a beauty. When you realize that your heart was hardened towards God, and if you have desired to step forward, to profess faith in Christ, to be baptized, to come to his table and partake of him, something softened your heart. And what was it? Was it that you were smarter than the other people? You figured things out and they didn't? No, it wasn't that. Is it that you were better, more moral and upright, just a a better all-around person? Nope, it wasn't that at all. The scriptures teach us that it's the Lord himself who softens hearts. He's the changer of hearts. So if your heart has been changed, you have every reason to give thanks and praise, to come to the table rejoicing. Like the crippled man, standing and walking and taking and eating and drinking, remembering that your heart was hard towards God. And that he is the one who softens and enables sinners to come to him. Just as the hardened heart had typical characteristics, so the soft heart does too. That softened heart by the Holy Spirit, it believes what the world says is unbelievable. It obeys the things that the world would say are cumbersome and restraining. And the softened heart practices self-sacrifice. One of the most obvious revelations of a softened heart. The sinful heart never wants to sacrifice itself. But a softened heart by the Holy Spirit wants to lay down its life for its friends. That's what Jesus said. And then lastly, the softened heart, rather than persecute, it evangelizes. It wants to speak of the joy that it's found. It wants to speak of the mercy that it's found. It wants to tell others of the goodness that it's found in the person, in the name, in the work of Jesus. And so this morning, I want to close, and as we come to the table, I want to give you three applications, three things to think on as you consider this passage and as we continue to look at Acts. And the first is this. To be humbled. Have you been humbled to the point where you have had to acknowledge my heart really has been or was that hard towards God? It was a sin-hardened heart. 
And the only difference between my now softened heart and my neighbor who is hardened, it's not me. It's the grace of God. It's the Spirit of God working by and with His Word in my heart. So be humbled. Consider your heart. Tell the Lord the story of your hard heart and give thankfulness for how He made it soft, if your heart is soft. Number two, be sobered. Be sobered. What do I mean? Persecution is coming for the church. For those who seek to be faithful in Christ Jesus, Jesus has said... Be prepared. It's coming. So be sobered. Enjoy our trips, our fun, our events, our barbecues, but don't ever think that the church is only about those things. Those are a means to fellowship. At the end of the day, every one of us, as we look in the mirror each morning, okay, this may be the day that persecution comes for following Jesus, for believing, for belonging to a Bible-believing church. Maybe the day that persecution comes. Be sober. Don't be surprised when persecution comes. And then thirdly, and most importantly, be encouraged. None of this catches the Lord off guard. None of this is a surprise to Him. He's told us to be prepared for persecution and suffering. And the Scriptures actually tell us He's prepared us for it. He's equipped us for it. One day in the future, we'll look at Ephesians chapter 6 and the armor of God that Paul says he gives his church, where the church, the Christian, is dressed and decked from head to toe in armor. And he says, that's what I've given my, my church, my Christians. Be prepared to take a beating is what that means, right? But you have armor for it. And this morning, you get to be encouraged, and I get to be encouraged, that the Lord has told us in his word, you'll be persecuted but he's also bringing us to his table. And you only bring your family members to the family table. He's inviting us this morning to come to be reminded that he was broken for us. His blood was shed for us. And in him, we have all the confidence that's needed to walk in a world that is hostile towards the church. So consider your faith. Be humbled, be sobered, but let's be encouraged. Let's pray together and then we'll come to the table. Lord, we do give you thanks for the honesty of your word, for how you have sought to prepare us for what you have said will come. We do pray for the persecuted church in the globe. We pray, Lord, that you would strengthen their faith even as we're reminded this morning of the reality of persecution. Would you visit them with your spirit to encourage their hearts, to strengthen their faith, to sustain them in the midst of hostility? And for us, Lord, would you give us grace now in your table to taste and see that the Lord is good, that his mercy endures forever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.